Chapter Eight of The Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Eight: The Palmerstons and Cambridge House. Walking along Piccadilly with my reader, I stop him at Number Ninety Four, the Naval and Military, or In and Out Club and pressing his arm with one emphatic hand, I point with t'other through the open gate across the courtyard to the plain stone house, and here, says I to him, here, reader, for fifteen years lived an Englishman and Englishwoman than whom you may search history through to find two examples more satisfying, more splendidly and completely true, of our national type. Other dwellers in Piccadilly may or may not impress you more acutely, there's Emma Hart, and Byron, and Old Q, and the Great Duke. There's romance and passion, poetry and wickedness and military glory, matters in which from time to time we English have been great. But if you would reflect to what fine pass the quite ordinary qualities of our countrymen may arrive, how noble a show may come of mere genial tempers and solid understandings, stand here in front of Cambridge House, and muse on the palmerstons before the reader does that however we must make our bow to chronology and attend a moment to pam's predecessors in cambridge house of whom one was a great noble and another a royal duke the third earl of egremont to wit and the duke of cambridge the house was built for the egremonts in seventeen sixty or so and had the honour, during the reign of the second earl, of receiving John Wilkes after the arrest of that firebrand for number 45 of the North Britain. He had been arrested by the earl's order, and the interview, we may be sure, was lively. Wilkes wrote an energetic account of the business to the Duke of Grafton from Paris. But this is only a brief incident, and Wilkes's ugly face, which, as he said, was only half an hour's handicap in the rivalries of love, is but a flash on the canvas. With the third Lord Egremont we may stay longer. It is true that his name belongs more to Petworth, that beautiful old place in Sussex, than to Piccadilly. It was there he lived almost entirely in his later life, practising that hospitality, at once casual, lordly and kindly, for which he was renowned. But in his younger days he had been a leader of London fashion, and this house in Piccadilly knew him at intervals through most of his long life. George O'Brien Wyndham, who was born in 1751 and died in 1837, was a type of what a great English noble with fine taste, much intelligence, sincere public spirit, but little aptitude for party politics, can be in these latter days. Perhaps this does not amount to very much. Even in his time, and still more in ours, the position is something of an empty survival. "'Your nobles,' said the German professor to Harry Richmond, "'are merely rich men.' That may be nearly true, but it is not quite true. Enough flesh remains on the bones of a system that in its day was logical and efficient to make a wealthy noble potentially a more useful person than a bare representative of individualist success in making money. His direct beneficence, given our traditions, may be easier and more graceful, and his example shines. Easy for him to be beneficent, but then, as it seems, it is easier still 
not to be. Lord Egremont, for instance, gave away £20,000 a year in charity. His income was £80,000 a year, and so, of course, he did not miss the money. The gift was less to him than if I gave away sixpence. Still, he gave it, and might not have given it, and many a richer man has been honoured for smaller gifts. He was a magnificent and helpful friend of painters, who were at home at Petworth, and whose works are now its distinction. In particular, he cherished Turner. They agreed well, and naturally so, for there was in both the simplicity of life and of attitude to life which belongs to true art and true aristocracy. This simplicity shone at Petworth, where host and guests went their own way all day, and met at dinner, at which Lord Egremont, in the cordial, if rather dilatory, old fashion, carved for each guest himself. In one matter, indeed, he fell short of a model nobleman, though convention was not outraged by his conduct so much then as it would be now. He was an avowed father without being a husband. He was not a rake, on the contrary was an affectionately domestic man. His children lived with him, and inherited all but his title after him. Pity that circumstances left the relation short of complete fitness. His not marrying in early life made Horace Walpole describe him as a worthless young fellow. The fact was that he had been going to, but did not, marry Horace Walpole's niece. Pity, as I said, that in this matter he defied convention, but that he did shows at least that his virtues of charity and kindness were his own, not assumed in compliance with it. On the monument in Petworth Church to his predecessors, the Percies, is the inscription Mortuis Morituras. I hope that he thought of it. In any case, he adopted it, and you may search wide for an inscription of a moral taste, so to say, so perfect and final. There was much to say of the Percies and himself, but in that place what was fitting to say was just that. They were dead, and he would die. I would trust the feeling for art, in a man who felt that propriety. Lord Egremont, however, would not have been a type of a great English noble if the art of painting and the cherishing of painters had been all his interests. He was not energetic in politics, though he was ready to back his views with his purse. But to fill the popular ideal of his position, which takes little account of the arts, he was a good sportsman, and above all a splendid patron of the turf, Mr. Theodore Cook, in his delightful history of that great institution, has much to say of Lord Egremont. Take him all in all, then. He was a worthy possessor of a great Piccadilly house, and his name must be honoured as we stand before it. The same may be said in a way of the royal duke who lived there afterwards, Lord Chumley intervening, till 1850. The Duke of Cambridge was not conspicuous among the brothers of George the Fourth who went the pace so merrily as young men, and were so eccentric, laughable, and on the whole amiable as old ones. He was not clever, which perhaps was just as well, since the Duke of Cumberland, who, with the slightly dubious exception of George himself, had the brains of that royal generation, was detested. All the stories of these royal dukes are of homely, innocent, individual oddities, the amusement of their society, which had little of the reverence for royalty now so fashionable. Those of the Duke of Cambridge are not remarkable. The best of them are of his conduct in church, 
where he was accustomed to give a cordial and audible support to the officiating clergyman. "'Let us pray,' said the clergyman. "'By all means, by all means,' said the Duke of Cambridge. On one commandment his comment would be, "'Quite right, quite right, but very difficult sometimes.' And on another, I won't say which, "'No, no, it was my brother Ernest did that.' Rather a dear old gentleman. He should not be omitted from a talk about the house which bears his name, but there is little to say of him. And now we come to the Palmerstons. I join them in my gossip, even as they were so thoroughly joined in life, for both were splendid examples, as I said, of our ordinary national type at its best. It may be that the spirit of Palmerston's policy lives here and there among our politicians, but his actual politics is dead, is as a wind that has blown by, so that the figure of the man as a man is the greater part that is left of him, and so his wife as a woman stands by his side in history, as in her way almost equally remarkable. The secret of both was in a vitality and cheerfulness that never so much as faltered. Hour after hour in the House of Commons, the old man, he was old when he comes into the story of Piccadilly, could attend to the dullest business, patient, businesslike, polite. Hour after hour, at the famous receptions at Cambridge House, he could stand with a smile and kindly handshake for innumerable guests, repeating the handshake in forgetfulness now and then, it is recorded, as he grew older, but never flagging in cordiality. And so Lady Palmerston filled up her countless invitation cards with her own hand, and kept her visiting book, says Abraham Haywood, as regularly as a merchant's ledger. But the formal part was the least of her tasks. She had to please all the good, dull people when they came. Her good nature, says Haywood again, and the tribute of the eulogy he wrote of her in the Times at her death is great, for it came from a critical temper. Her good nature was inexhaustible, nor was it ever known to give way under any extent of forwardness or tiresomeness. Instead of interrupting or abruptly quitting wearisome or pushing visitors, she would listen till they ceased of their own accord, or were superseded and went away. All this must have been trying indeed to her. She was the daughter of a clever house, sister to Lord Melbourne, and had lived all her life in a lively, well-bred and intimate society, a society which is most familiarly reflected, I think, in the letters of Harriet, Lady Granville. These are some of the best women's letters in English, and they paint the best of the society which followed the generation of Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, who was Lady Granville's mother, a society unaffected, conversable, given to jokes and games. To come from that to the entertaining of average members of Parliament and their womenkind must have been a discipline much more severe than the role of an ambassador's wife in Paris, which greatly tried the patience of Lady Granville. Nor did Lady Palmerston care for politics, apart from personalities. She was her husband's invaluable ally, but only as another ear and mouth. When politics were brought to her, she made a careful note, or sent at once for the great man. Devotion to him and his interests was all her inspiration, and a good heart, good wits, good manners, and, one is glad to know, good health and digestion, carried her through. There had been stories about them, old stories, my dear, in other days, 
She was the widow of Lord Cooper, and there was trouble about her second marriage. Palmerston was volage and gay, and was not, as a young man, called Cupid Palmerston for nothing. Her friends prophesied unhappiness. Lady Granville wrote, Lady Cooper has courage to face her angry children. I cannot say how much I blame them for telling what they feel, but I wonder she can encounter their antipathy. What a happy mother she might have been, and what an unhappy existence will she have, I fear. Her understanding never has been of the slightest use to her. Well, well, the wisest of us are poor prophets. Her existence was most happy, and her understanding exceeding useful and her children came dearly to love Lord Pam. He was a lovable man, a hearty, unaffected, easy, joyous man, really a consummate type of good, average qualities, not interested in art or literature, which was easily forgiven him, but interested in almost everything else, a man of whom it was characteristic that he never passed a dish at table, and played a bad game of billiards with infinite zest, loving much to win, and especially if his wife were looking on. The affection of his countrymen generally was won by their rough appreciation of this simple nature, perhaps almost as much as by their belief that he stood for England, and the rights and dignity of England, without compromise or exception. The respect and prestige he had in Parliament, and among those who came in contact with him, were founded, above all, on his absolute command of his business. He was like the late Lord Randolph Churchill in this, that being a pleasure-loving man, and having lived hard as a man of pleasure, when ambition sent him to business, he gave himself wholly to it, and lived hard as a man of business. He was something of a gourmet, yet when Parliament was sitting, he dined at three, and but for some tea at the house, touched nothing more till he came home to bed at one o'clock. As a result, he knew what he was about when he rose to answer questions or make a speech, and he could express his knowledge lucidly and in that easy conversational tone which to Englishmen, and especially in the House, is most acceptable. Many an English statesman has been wrecked in public life from sheer inability to get on with his colleagues at close quarters. That, of course, was not the case with Palmerston, yet it is not true to say that the reverse was the case. People who are offended by downrightness and occasional brusquerie, timid and punctilious people like Lord John Russell, he scandalised. His success came not from any one quality, as was shrewdly remarked of him, but from an unusual combination of qualities, gaiety and sense, lucidity and fire. But he had the defects of those qualities too. That reminds me that he had critics in private life, and that I have been straying to the House of Commons from Cambridge House. His jollity and fun and laughter could grate on the fastidious. Henry Greville, for example, as fastidious, though not as articulate a critic as his brother Charles, has recorded his exceptions. Although he was a most cordial and courteous host, he never struck me as an agreeable man. He was always good-humoured and ready to talk, but his style was too jocose, and his jests were for the most part flat, and one felt in his society a constant disappointment that the conversation of a man who was playing so important and conspicuous a part in the world, and who must necessarily have so much to communicate, should be made up of puns and bad jokes, etc., etc. The idea crosses one's mind that possibly Pam had not much to communicate. 
to Mr. Henry Greville and preferred to chaff him. Still one knows too well that high spirits and empty jests, a mere expression of high spirits to the jester, like singing in his bath, may be a bore when one is not attuned to them, and no doubt Pam may so have sinned. I think, however, had I been there, that delight in an octogenarian vitality, in a humour and kindness which had survived so much toil, so many rows in public, and so much zest of life in private, would have reconciled me to any number of puns and bad jokes. Alas, I was not there. As I write of these ghosts in Piccadilly, I strain my imagination to visualise them as they were. The help is all too little. Letters and diaries of contemporaries, however graphic and acute they may be, seem ever to leave out those simple elementary things we seek. Familiar with appearances and voices and manners, they forget to describe them, or not having our interests in mind, have no reason for the description. We are left guessing and inferring. Palmerston, too, perhaps died too lately for his vie intime to be easily at our service. I get a picture or two of him at Cambridge House from Lord Lorne's, the present Duke of Argyle, book on him. One, sent to Lord Lorne by a correspondent, is of Palmerston in his workroom, standing at a high desk, almost unapproachable from the fortification of office boxes piled around him. And then Lord Lorne, more careful than most biographers, gives us some details of his looks, and, yes, I can see him, at the top of the staircase in Cambridge House, shaking hands with his guest, an upstanding figure, neither short nor tall, very neatly dressed, the head erect on the shoulders, framed with grey short hair brushed forward, and grey whiskers, greyer close to the cheek. The hair was black and the face round when he was Cupid Palmerston. He whispers to one man an account of a famous prize fight, which happened that day, not admitting that he was there, and greets another cordially for the second time. And I hear his jolly laugh as he repeats a bad pun to the disappointed Henry Greville. End of chapter 8